Well, if you're visiting, you happen to go by the parking lot and you saw that we have a marquee board that says New Life Church. And in the Constitution and the bylaws of New Life Church, an amendment we have in Article 3 of our covenant, this is what we covenant with each other, that we promise by God's grace and through the indwelling presence of His Spirit to live lives in keeping with the truth of the gospel, continually repenting of our sin and walking by faith in newness of life. And so we make this pledge to God and each other because we have new life in Christ. We have a new life because the very first gift that the Spirit gives us is the germ of an eternal spiritual life. The Holy Spirit gives us the origin, the source, the kernel, the seed of an eternal spiritual life. And the means by which that seed is sown into our hearts is through the eternal new life-giving Word of God that is preached in the Gospel. And that's what we're looking at this morning. And that's why we preach the Gospel here every Sunday morning, because the Word of God is the means by which the Holy Spirit gives us this new life that we all have when we come to faith. So we are a church that believes in and promotes that we now have new life in Christ. And this morning we're going to learn how that new life came into being for each one of us and what other things must also be true for us because we now walk in newness of life. So I'm going to be reading in 1 Peter 1.22 from the NIV. You can follow along above or in your own Bible through the ESV there or in your own text. Verse 22, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. So there's a linear sequence of key ideas here that we're going to look at more closely as we consider Peter's meaning this morning in this paragraph. And as we let each one of these key ideas sort of rummage around in our brain you'll probably be thinking like I was. I understand what the words are saying, but what does that really mean? And I think there's five key ideas. Peter is suggesting to us that sometime in the past, a purification of your souls took place. You entered into a state of soul purification. And... You're the one who did the purifying when you obeyed the truth. And not only that, but sometime in the past, you received this source, this kernel, this seed of eternal spiritual life. 
You made room for that truth in your heart. And so we want to ask this morning, how did that happen? What an amazing thing. How did that happen? And the means by which the Spirit gave you this new life was through the living and abiding Word of God that you heard preached in the Gospel. And finally, Peter's saying, because all of those things are true for us, Peter commands us to demonstrate that truth by loving everyone else who has this newness of life fervently and from a pure heart. And so we might want to ask, how are we doing on the fervent part? So let's go back to the first question we want to consider. In what sense have we purified our souls? Well, we know it's not in the absolute sense. You just have to ask my wife and she could tell you that I'm not absolutely purified. (laughs) And there wouldn't be any need for Peter to tell us in chapter 2, verse 1, to put aside malice, guile, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, which might get in the way of us fervently loving each other, if our souls were pure in an absolute sense. So in what sense have we purified our souls? And we know the answer to that because of the way Peter wrote this text. The NIV translated like this, Now that you have purified yourselves, and Peter in the original language would have literally wrote, having purified your souls. And so his meaning was, now that your souls are existing in a state of purity. And so we might want to take a grammar moment here, go back to high school for a second. So we have the subject of the sentence here as a participle. And that's kind of a weird idea, I think, for an ing word to be the subject of a sentence. Having purified your souls. But let me give you an example you might be able to understand better. If I said to you, preaching is Pastor Travis's gift. Preaching is the, the noun. The subject, is, is the verb. And Pastor Travis's gift is the direct object. And so in this paragraph, we also have a main verb. So the subject is having purified your souls, and the main verb is love one another fervently. And then there's a bunch of prepositional phrases in the interim there. And these tenses in the voices he's using signify to us that he means that sometime in the past, you purified your souls by obeying the truth. And as you continue to walk in your Christian life, you live in a state of soul purification. And you are the one who did the purifying. That's probably the reason for some scribes sort of cringing, possibly, at Peter's orthodoxy, and made them want to assert a clarifying phrase there, which says, through the Spirit, in some of the manuscripts. Having purified your souls by obeying the truth through the Spirit, they added. Because there's an orthodox question we want to ask, well, how is it that we purify our souls? But either way you read 
Peter's strong statement here in the text, it, it works because Peter has already declared the same emphasis of the Spirit's involvement in our salvation way back at the beginning of the chapter in verse 2. He said, being chosen for salvation through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And now in verse 22, as he's coming back around to complete his idea that he began in verse 2, he's adding how you were involved in this purification. You purified your souls in the past when you believed and obeyed the gospel, the truth of the gospel. Now, that's a difficult concept, I think, for Gentiles, but every Jew would have understood exactly what he meant, I think. It happens the same way in the New Testament, by the way, as it did in the Old Testament. Just like in the Old Testament, our souls now exist in a state of purity in a ceremonial sense because of the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. And in the same ceremonial sense, it is that the blood purified Aaron and God's people way back in Exodus chapter 24, verse 6 and following. And in verse 6 there in Exodus 24, it says, And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people, And they said, all that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. So it's clear that when Peter's talking in verse 2, he's adding unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood. He's referring back to this idea here. And then it says in verse 8, And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. And so by sprinkling blood on the people, Moses was formalizing a covenantal pledge between God and man, where in a sense, Moses was protecting the sprinkled people from being in the presence of a holy God because of their sin. He was in a sense ceremoniously setting them apart from their sin. He was marking them out as having been purified, the same idea that Peter has in verse 22. They still sinned, but in that ritual of sprinkling them with the blood of rams and bulls, they were protected from the holiness of God. And that blood was sprinkled all around the altar as well, which now made it possible and available for the purified, sprinkled, covenant-keeping people to come into the presence of a holy, righteous God. Being sprinkled ceremoniously with blood confirmed that those who had been sprinkled with the blood had been sanctified the same way that we have been purified, exist in a state of purification. And so their souls were now in a purified state or a sanctified state because of the blood. And so we could probably better understand what Peter meant in verse 2 of 1 Peter like this. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sphere of the Spirit's sanctifying work on our souls 
moving us toward the destination of obedience and the purification that results from being sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. What a great idea in one sentence that is. And so this is the sense in which we exist in a purified state. All of the sins that we have committed in the past and all of the sins that we might commit today and all the ones we will likely commit in the future have no bearing on the state of our sanctification. And I I say that cautiously. Travis warned me to be cautious. That See, that doesn't mean that grace gives you permission to sin. It means that grace will enable you to desire to be obedient to the truth. You still live in your sinful flesh, but your soul is now ceremoniously cleaned. It's been sprinkled by the purifying blood of Jesus when you obeyed the truth. So there was a definite time in the past when you obeyed a particular truth. And now we want to define more thoroughly what that truth is. And how does believing that truth lead to our having been purified? And what does it mean to obey it? So we'll turn to John chapter 3 just for a moment. We're turning to John chapter 3 because he answers all of these questions for us. And John is the theologian of the birth from above. In fact, in John chapter 3, he mentions God's begetting us 11 times, but throughout his gospel and the epistles, he mentions it over and over again, this idea of being begotten by God, being born again by the Spirit of God. So follow along with me. We're going to look at a few verses, and I'm going to try to explain eventually to get how this talks to us about our purification. In verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And so Jesus didn't come into the world to execute a judgment of condemnation on a sinful world, he's saying. His coming into the world was for the purpose of saving those who believe. That is the truth of the gospel message. Jesus saves those who believe. But in his coming, there is a pronouncement of a moral judgment. But it's not one that Jesus himself makes. We make it upon ourselves. Jesus doesn't need to intervene personally in judgment because he who refuses to believe has pronounced on himself his own spiritual judgment, John is saying. That condemnation he brings upon himself in his unbelief is also a reference to the state the unbeliever exists in in his unbelief. He exists in a state of condemnation because of his unbelief. 
His unbelief marks him out as having been condemned. And just like believers have been marked out as having been purified in their obedience to the truth, unbelievers are marked out as having been condemned in their disobedience to the truth. And the reason he's marked out for condemnation is because nothing demonstrates his spiritual disposition better than his unbelief that tells the whole story. Unbelief is the calling card for condemnation. By rejecting Jesus, he reveals his innermost moral tendency, which is he would rather love darkness than the light. And in his love for the darkness, he's marked himself out as unclean, as sinful, guilty, unforgiven, not covered by the sprinkled blood. And so then John continues in verse 19, and this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And so the process whereby we understand how the condemnation comes about is also the way we understand how our being purified comes about. The light of men, their their source of true wisdom about life, which is the truth about the reality of our evil condition and our sinfulness and how God is going about resolving that, has now been revealed so as to be completely understood with the coming of Jesus. This is the same thing that Scott was talking about at Gladstone where the prophets were looking to try to figure it all out, but now we are blessed because we, we have the resolution of this in the coming of Jesus. And if you were to take a picture of what men were doing before Christ came, that picture would show you that men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And so I see that meaning this. In their hearts, men were morally light rejectors. They, they were rejectors of God's saving truth in Christ because they rather loved darkness. They loved rather being in the place where there could be no conviction of sin. They loved being in a world where there could be no moral absolutes. There couldn't be any idea of right and wrong and no truthful and untruthful. That's why they preferred it. And so John is saying there's a judgment, a condemnation that comes with this preference of loving darkness rather than the light. Which saving truth, by the way, is what Peter's talking about in the first chapter, rescuing the unbeliever out of the darkness that reveals his love for the light. And so then in verse 20 of John chapter 3, he says, For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. And the truth is that when men are confronted with the light and placed in the presence of God's light and his eternal word, they hate it. They hate the light because it's opposed to their innermost moral manner of life. And when confronted with Jesus' holy and divine life 
and the revelation that he brought, that he is the source of God's truth, their unbelief towards him revealed the reality of their love for darkness. Folks, this is exactly what Peter is referring to in his first chapter. The whole trinity is involved in taking believers out of a corrupt and unbelieving world of darkness and sin. A world that rejects God's truth. A world that is perishing and defiled and fading away in its corruption. And sets believers instead into the realm of the purified. Into the realm of the sanctified. The very moment we make room for God's truth in our hearts. And then John ties all of this together with obedience, as Peter does in verse 21. He says, but he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. And so he that is doing the truth, he who is being obedient, is he who is coming to Christ. He's coming to the light. He understands it as truth. And he's living in a way that now acknowledges that Christ is the light of men and the source of God's truth. And so it's in your coming to Christ that your works can be clearly seen in the light that they have been worked in God and result in your purification. I really like the way Frederick Godet put it. He said, when anyone does evil and wishes to persevere in it, he turns his back upon Jesus and his holiness. If his conscience came to be enlightened by this brightness, it would oblige him to renounce that which he wishes to keep. Therefore, he denies it, and this denial is for him the darkness in which he can continue to sin. Such is the genesis of unbelief, he said. And here in First Peter is the genesis of the purification of our souls as well. Because true faith in the gospel means that we need to be all about the truth of God. To seek to live in light of that truth. To seek to be obedient to the revelation of God in your conscience and in your heart and in your spirit. And it's in this coming to the light, coming to Christ, this drawing near to Jesus, this hearing and perceiving the truth of who Jesus is and listening to Him so as to surrender yourself to Him and to be obedient to Him. It's in this kind of coming to Christ that you have been marked as purified, cleansed from sin, set apart unto holiness, and sanctified. So when one does the truth, one obeys the truth by coming to the light. And so then we ask ourselves, okay, well, in what sense are we obedient to the truth? You became Christians as the result of obeying the truth, or by yielding to the influence of the truth on your soul. That's what purified your soul. Your minds complied with the claims of truth. 
Your hearts yielded to its truth when you exercised your own will to believe the truth. That truth was voluntarily received into your soul. Now let me just make a little asterisk note here on the side. People who reject the light don't hate the light because God didn't elect them. That's not the reason they hate the light. They hate the light because of the reality of their own sinfulness. Because of their own choice for loving darkness rather than light. And so that word obey literally means to hear under. It's the word upakuo. Upo means under. Akuo is where we, we get the word acoustic. It means to hear under. To comprehend under. To put myself under what I understand. So that listening becomes comprehending. And hearing becomes heeding the truth. Thomas Watson, that ancient Puritan guy, said, doers become the best hearers. It's not just the idea of hearing the truth, but moving from listening to comprehending to obeying that Peter is talking about. A doer of the truth then completely hears the truth and is motivated to be obedient to it. And interestingly enough, the opposite of obedience then isn't disobedience, it's unbelief. So that comprehending equals believing, which is equivalent to obeying. So let me just make a quick note as to what obeying is not. This obeying the truth is not keeping every aspect of the truth obediently as if obeying the truth were a law that needs to be kept. It's not that sense, but rather disobedience is in the sense that we understand that God is the author of truth. Truth comes to us through his word, through his revelation to us. And this is the truth, that the light of the world has come into the world as a reality. And that our obedience to that truth means that we now live in recognition of the truth of God's forgiveness of sin in Christ Jesus. This now forms our worldview. And this is the basis for Peter saying, you were cleansed ceremoniously from your sins when you obeyed the truth. Your soul cleansing came when you first heard the truth about Jesus and chose to come to him. When you chose to come to him. And when you decided that darkness was not for you. So circle back around with me now after that little extended excursion. Back to 1 Peter 1.22. Peter's saying, because all of that's true... Now something has to happen in our relationships with everyone else who has obeyed the same truth and is existing in that same ceremoniously pure state. Something has to happen. God has done this to have something else occur. In verse 22 it says, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, you must show sincere love for each other as brothers and sisters. 
love each other deeply with all your heart. That's a commandment. It's an imperative. Love one another fervently. In disobedience to the truth, you've entered into the state of being ceremoniously clean when you obeyed the truth. And the end result that God has in view for every one of you who has been purified by obeying the truth is to love the brethren. That love has to be fervent. It has to be zealous, passionate, with intense straining. It has to be enthusiastic. It has to be wholehearted. It can't be a pretentious love. Some translations say it, it's you're not to love hypocritically, not playing a part like an actor would on stage, but stretched out fully and unceasingly. Be one that is unhypocritical, not acting it out like an actor on stage is what the sense is. And because that love is now residing in a heart that belongs to that existing state of purity that your soul is in, you have obeyed the truth of God's saving grace in Christ. So Peter is just saying, do it! Love everyone who has obeyed the truth like you have. Don't Love each other as if you were brothers and sisters, but because you are brothers and sisters, you have obeyed the truth and come to the light of Christ. That's the motivation for you. So you need to love then genuinely from the heart with a full intensity in an all-out manner. Put the love pedal to the metal, I guess you could say. Because only those who are born of the Spirit's imperishable seed can have this fervent, zealous love for each other. This unpretentious love of the brethren is the goal and the end result, then, of sharing newness of life together. When you made room for God's truth in your hearts by believing the gospel, that became the influence, the catalyst for you to sincerely love your brothers and sisters. I love the way Anthony Hokema says this. He says, This new life is a radical change from spiritual death to spiritual life, brought about in us by the Holy Spirit. A change in which we are completely passive. God did the work here. Having been begotten is passive. God did the work. We didn't beget ourselves. And so this change is a fruit of God's sovereign grace to us, like we sang this morning. And at the moment we receive this new life, we become spiritually alive. And so our previous resistance to God is changed to non-resistance. And our love for darkness is changed to a love for the light. That person who is outside of Christ is now in Christ. So this is a radical, not a superficial change. It's the Holy Spirit giving us a new heart. And with that, the very source of our thinking and our feeling and our willing and our believing and our praying and our praising 
is all renewed because of the work the Spirit has done in us. And then Peter closes out this end of chapter 1 with a beautiful passage where he makes a comparison. We have been recreated in and to newness of life. And so the defilement of our hearts has been cleansed, it's been purified, it's been washed in the sprinkled blood of Jesus. And then he gives us a comparison. In verse 24, For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Folks, men who are not born of the Spirit of God are, are like the grass, he's saying. And even the grass that perishes has an element of glory to it. You've, you've seen how beautiful it is to come across acres of wheat that are in flower, blowing in the wind with the sun setting behind it. That is a majestic, beautiful sight. There's glory in that. And all the glory of men is his wisdom and his strength, the wealth of his natural gifts, and the incredible ability to learn and to appreciate the beauty of creation. All those things that we can say about men that really are glorious are all transitory. They're all defiled, they're all subject to perishing, they're all fading away. Because even the best things that are part of men's glory wither and fade away. Just like the flowers of the grass in all their glory fade away. Because men don't have the power to maintain their own glory. And like the flower, they fall away from their temporary glorious state. And only the word of God, when it is believed in the heart, can cause that defiled, subject to perishing and fading away life that was born of corruptible seed to be born again to a new birth so that life now continues for those who believe forever and doesn't ever perish like the flower that falls away. And this is exactly the idea he's come back to in 3 through 8 in the very first beginning of the chapter. He's closing his ideas here. And it's because the Spirit of God accompanies that word that it carries in it the germ of life. It's only in believing that word that men are born again to now live and abide forever. In contrast to those who are born only in the flesh. Folks, that should be a reason for us to tremble with amazement at God's word. We should be holding the gospel word in the highest honor, cherishing it as everlasting truth and the means to granting new life to those who believe. Isn't this a wonderful passage to have such a glorious truth be the basis then for our sharing communion this morning? Sharing it together. Because in Jesus, the sinner hands over his sins to the perfect one. And the perfect one hands over his perfect righteousness to the sinner. 
Because of the blood of Jesus, God sees Christ's perfection covering our imperfection. And the believing sinner stands complete in the perfect one, accepted in the beloved, sanctified in the blood of the beloved, purified in the blood of the beloved, cleansed by the blood of Jesus, so that we now stand before God on a new footing as men and women who have become the righteousness of God in Christ. And we who believe now get newness of life and peace and pardon and blessing simply because the perfect one has sacrificed himself for us.